So I bought a ring today. I like my beard. Welcome to Tradeoffs, where Nira's Heaton Shaw and Profwell's Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about beards. A beard is like spanks for a man's face. MBAs. I think the MBA is changing to accommodate people who want to get into like startups and therefore may be useful to hire MBAs who are interested in startups. Product strategy. If you have a product strategy and you can align the customer on the product strategy, the long term isn't an issue because they believe in your long term. And nuptials. Just one piece of classic advice. Happy wife, happy life. I don't think what you just said was true. And now that we're recording, please repeat what, what you said. What I was said. saying is I get why you like the beard. I have a pretty hefty beard now and it's getting there. It's not that hefty. It's probably about as hefty as yours right now. Yours I've seen pretty epic. And I was just saying I like it for myself, but I don't know if it looks that great. Uh, and you beg to differ. So yeah, what's up? I don't think a beard looks worse. The statement you made was it does not look as good as a clean shaven right. face, which I took umbrage with. Umbrage, that's the mood I'm in today, those types of words. The reason I took umbrage with that is because a beard is like spanks for a man's face. That's really what a beard is. Or it is an artistic flair for customization and accessorizing your face. And for me, when I shave, I definitely don't look as good because I'm losing weight and I actually shave sometimes to remind myself of how fat my face is so that I get my butt back in the gym. So yeah, I don't know. I think it adds like, especially if you have like a rounder face, it can add angles. Here's a fun story. This is actually related to our audience. I started growing facial hair because one of the first big customers in a board meeting I was in I started presenting my results, all this fun stuff around pricing for this company. And the person who like took over the team that I was hired by was like very much like, I think trying to tank the project or trying to look good. So she just stops the meeting and goes, hold on a second. How old are you? I didn't say this, but I just was like, I was flabbergasted and I was like, this is super inappropriate, like in my mind. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, can I help you? Like I, I deflected of like, oh, can I help you? Well, how long have you been doing this? And I was like, well, you know, I've been doing it for this long, but like, you know, this data is, is kind of like true or not. Like it's not, it doesn't matter my age or whatever. And she made it into this credibility thing. So at that point on, I just started growing facial hair before bigger meetings because I was like, oh, they're going to think I'm a baby face kid, which I was, and I still am relative to these things. And then it became spanked. You've told me face. that story before. Definitely when you shave, you look like a kid, partly because of the round face I thing I bad. think you're talking about. And it's just true. Yeah, I understand. It's spanks yeah, for the face. I get it. I just like it right now because I let it go to a point where I'm going to like it versus cut it at the I point where I good. don't like it when it's like itching. But now like I want to touch it and like twist it around and I'm like, yeah, this is good for a minute. It'll be good. I think I'm going to keep it for a minute. You look very distinguished. I don't know. There's something something to the vibe with the long hair and then the beard that I kind of like. I think when you go long hair, like... You can't not have that vibe, meaning like if you had the beard, it's not going to adjust the vibe at all. It's like the same vibe, if that makes sense. More like you're doubling down. This is what our audience wants to hear. Yeah, there you go. Conversations. It is also kind of funny. Like, I think it's because as men, we don't have as many things that society has deemed us to debate, accessorize, or like talk about, about physical appearance. So there's always like beard conversations. Yeah, it's either the head or the or the feet, yeah, it's right? It's the head or the feet. You're talking about your Something shoes like or you're talking about yeah. your beard, right? Or your hair. 
or your yeah, hair. But even the hair is yeah, not yeah, that yeah, big yeah, of a deal. Yeah. You either got short or long. There's very little in between. I will say I've started noticing like the people we sell to, how many of them have beards. It's just kind of interesting because you kind of want to like break into the tribe of the people you sell to. And it's been it's been an interesting thing because I'm like, oh, there's a lot of these corporate people where beards are looked at as like messy or bad. It's not as bad in tech, but I know we had a guy, he came from a finance like company. They did finance like outsourcing and stuff. And he was told often, even if he had one day of stubble or whatever, it was like very corporate in the sense of, well, if you don't shave, how can I trust you? Right? Like it was that level of like intense, which thankfully is not as much in tech, but it is kind of interesting that there's some organizations where that stuff matters still. Yeah. I mean, I've never had to worry about that. In my case, like I, right around the pandemic, I met someone who is very senior at a public company that's in security and IT. And I saw his sort of ponytail and kind of beard. And I think I was inspired unknowingly because it's pretty epic. And it was like the first one I saw and I was like, oh, huh. And so then now I pretty much look exactly like him from a ponytail beard standpoint. So funny you say that about customers and all that stuff. The folks we sell to are IT and security. And yeah, not all of them, but enough of them definitely have the beard, ponytail. I don't care how I look kind of attitude because they just sit there in front of their computer working cranking away you know or in meetings and nobody cares it's kind of funny too like when i worked at nsa like for the government they were very known as no dress code no like anything so the cia when we'd go visit our counterparts at the cia everyone's got a jacket if they go into meetings they wear the jacket like everyone's like very like pressed and i think it's because the way i describe these agencies NSA is like the nerds in school that do the homework for the jocks and the jocks are like the CIA because the CIA, a lot of people don't realize this and this, this is all public. So I'm okay saying it is like, except for the clandestine stuff, which is part of the organization, but not the whole organization, all of their intel is from other agencies. It's all from the military, NSA, et cetera. And them in the state department, again, except for the clandestine part or the diplomat part, which is, you know, a big part, but it's not even half of those organizations. They just write book reports all day. So it was kind of funny, like how, you know, we would have counterparts who like, oh, I was in this meeting with this person and I got to brief them on X, Y, Z. And it's like, yeah, but I did the cool work for that thing, which is like, yeah, I don't get the FaceTime, but I did the real learning, right? I did the cool stuff, right? That actually is more rewarded, which, you know, can be frustrating sometimes. But that was, that was always funny. You'd have guys like in the middle of like the worst days for this. Like there was a guy, he wore combat boots and jean shorts every day, every single day. He had a long ponytail about him and it was like normal. Cause it, it's like, again, it's a lot of engineer, like software engineers, a lot of math people, a lot of just like quanty people. And so they, they're just like, they don't like environments where you have to like be pressed and wear your jacket and like stuff like that. So yeah, it's interesting. Dress code. Well, I never thought we'd talk about fashion. No, dress code. Never thought fashion. we'd talk about fashion. I work remotely. I have a sweatshirt on right now. I'm totally cool with it. Did a demo earlier looking more or less like this. Maybe the hair was down. Uh, I don't remember. Utah is a little more wear a jacket. They have a lot of uh, sales folks. So it's like button down. I started wearing pants more basically is what I'm <laughs> I see. I see. It's like that, huh? <laughs> when I go meet people, it's like I at least wear pants and like a nicer shirt. Mm, I see. Okay. I have a theory. And the theory is every company enters a button-up stage 
where like the founders were like wearing, you know, whatever, sweatpants, shorts, whatever to get the job done. And then there's a phase where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I feel like I have to have a minimum dress. And the minimum dress is like a pair of jeans and a button up or a pair of jeans and a nice t-shirt or something. I feel like every company hits that stage and then stays at the stage. They don't necessarily need to get into the jacket stage, but I think that there's at least a stage where you're like, oh, I have to like look better to the team that I don't talk to every day. I think it depends how you lead and if you lead with your voice or you lead with your look. And so if you lead with your look, then absolutely I've seen what you're talking about. If you lead with your voice, it doesn't matter because your voice is what carries the weight. And so I think it depends on how you lead. So for example, I lead with my voice, like as you would imagine, right? So it shouldn't matter how I look or anything, even like on demo calls with customers or anything like that. It's some kind of sweatshirt. Sometimes it's a gray one. Usually it's a colored one. It's either blue or maroon are the two I like, and I'll wear that and get on an interview and record or whatever. With you, it's a lot more casual in my opinion. So I'd rather like wear something that makes me feel really comfortable. So it'll be gray or something like that, or a shirt if it's warm enough. I even got some new sweatshirts during the pandemic because that's just the norm for me. I kind of do that on purpose too because like I don't want our team to ever, not that they do, but ever discriminate against how someone looks and what they wear and things like that. And I wouldn't say that they do or they don't. Like that's not what I mean to say I've noticed a problem. But if I'm sitting here representing myself in the way that I want to, wearing whatever I want to, I think that gives other people the right to do that when it's appropriate and also makes them not judge anyone on the other side for whatever's going on with them, whether it's the background is very cluttered, right? And things like that. Because the thing is, like, we add a lot of cognitive weight when we start judging. And then we get away from what we're trying to accomplish in a call, in a meeting or whatever. And I know a lot of people get distracted by what's in the background for somebody else because of curiosity and other things. And so this is also a reason why I sit in the corner of my house. There's nothing behind me for you to get distracted by. All you can see is me, right? It's not ideal because it's a corner and there's this like wedge right here and all that, but like I'm okay with it. It's good enough. I get away with it. It's also a little different. If someone asks, I can talk about my beanbag that I sit on all day, right? And actually my setup's pretty sick from a just setup standpoint because I have a widescreen monitor. If I want your face to be life-size, I can do that. It's not uh, vertical, it's horizontal. It's a wide screen, right? It's about 34 inches. I don't have to move my head a lot for it. I'm sitting on a beanbag. My legs are in between in a hole where the stand is. So there's like a coffee table that's in front of me, but it's like a square one with a massive square hole. So I can just put my feet right through it. And then the monitor is right on top, right? And even rigged it up so I can move this microphone here, which is the microphone I use for you because you got me this microphone here. I use a freaking microphone. I'm like, okay, here's a microphone, right? But it's usually only for our podcast, but it's great because I got it all set up. And so for me, it's like, I think comfort's important and people realizing that we should not be focused on what's in the background or anything and focused on the work, what we're talking about and those kind of things. So that's my long-winded kind of like, I prefer that over having to look a certain way and making that carry whatever I want it to. Now, on on contrast, I'm pretty sure my co-founder, Marie, is probably sliding towards my, (laughs) my MO, but in general, she would probably prefer to look a certain way for a certain meeting. Got it. I feel like you're fighting the idealist. Let me put it this way. We've never had to like explain dress code for any in-person customer meetings or like conferences or anything. So maybe like, I don't worry about it. We're not an in-person company. So so even, even events, we're not doing them right now where anyone travels. 
there's no travel policy here. You folks are, you know, traveling a lot more than we are. Um, you also have offices, I think with the S if I'm not mistaken. So it's just different construct, right? Here, I think how people treat others on a, in a Zoom meeting or a Google Hangout or whatever is is of utmost importance, right? And, and, and whether they get distracted with what's in the background, like literally, I know people that'll be looking at those books you have right there and trying to figure out what books are right there, even though no, the other side. Those are the ones I can see. I can't see those. I can see those. But like, like literally, I don't even care. I didn't, I didn't even think twice, but like you have, it's human nature, right? To have that curiosity. And I'm sure those are not even your books considering you're in Boston right now and all that. These are actually my, my Oh, books. cool. Yeah. But what I mean is I'm sure they're not ones you're reading right now or anything. This one's not my book. I don't claim any Simon Sinek. <laughs> it's like that. Lots of Rand Fishkin's books. Is it because there's no data there's in his Rand work? Fishkin's is that books. why you don't like it, Patrick? I think Simon Sinek... You should just listen to a podcast where he summarizes things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Here's a Rand Fishkin proof of his book that I gave feedback on. He's one I could say a lot about his writing, just like you did about Simon. So let's just leave that one out of it. This is a book we were in about doing original Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I have more books over here. Now we're going to see all of them. Great. I think we're in this book as well. But uh, Oh, yeah, I should say this because not everyone's watching. The Way of the Growth Warrior. I don't think I've read that. This was a book, Fighting Churn with cool. Data. This guy named Carl Gold. He wrote this book. It's a data science book. So it's got a lot of models. That's neat. Like, I kind of want that stuff. book now. So, no, this book is really good. And when I told Carl, because Carl's since left Zora, he was like the chief economist or something at Zora. I told him, I was like, listen, like you guys should implement this in yeah. Zora. Yes. Like this is this is the stuff we need. Like this book is great and it, it qualifies your your credibility at least, but like it's one of those things where like people don't want to do this work themselves because they're going to have to hire a data scientist and even then a data, every data scientist thinks they just want to like, you know, reinvent things. And so what we've done, which I think is great is like we just implement this stuff. So we're coming out with health scores. It's it's out so people can access it, but it's not in the UI yet. Um, so it's not really accessible until you talk to me. But if someone's listening to this and they want to talk to me, I can. And then Masters of Doom. This is a good book. This is a book I actually read. So yeah, this is great. It's John Carmack and John Romero who are like the Lennon and McCartney of video games. So they did Doom and Quake. That was the big claims of fame. This book is great. This is the economics of strategy, like mm. actual econ models. Yummy. I feel like I'm at book time. And then this is one we kind of passive aggressively buy new hires sometimes. It's an illustrated book of bad arguments. We don't do it as passive aggressively, but people, we do reference this book to people because it goes through like argumentative fallacies and it'll give you like a visual representation of it, like straw man and like stuff like that, which is pretty good. So anyways, those are my books. But to our point, these were definitely just for background for some other stuff we're doing. But also I do think that like, I get your point of like, no one should care. I do think that in a buying environment or external people, it can help or hurt your trust. So depending on your aim, I think sometimes it's good to have like either a neutral palette like you do, where it's like, it's not in any direction or like the Utah office where like it all has like really nice production design. That stuff like definitely gets us some kudos, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, when you do it well and the back looks great, like even yours right now, it's set up well. I know you're not, you're just winging it today and have have some setup things you're doing, but like it looks well, it looks well done. It's anchored right, you know, and stuff like that. I know it's not perfect today, but it looks good. You look good. You look like the work mode, beast mode type recording today, you know? So yeah. And I try to go more neutral because I can't do any better right now. And I kind of like my beanbag more than kind of. What's our topic today that's more sassy or producty? What do we got? What's on your mind? My idea of MBAs is changing. My opinion of MBA people is changing. 
I spoke at HBS today and I've spoken at a couple of other like classes, MBA program classes. I think the MBA is changing to accommodate people who want to get into like startups and therefore may be useful to hire MBAs who are interested in startups. Whereas previously I was like, MBAs, you should go to a big tech company or go to a big corporate company. That's the only thing that's on my mind. Well, there's other things, but that's the thing that's immediately on my mind that I thought like, oh, I could throw this out there and see what Heaton thinks. I highly value critical thinking. I think it's very difficult to be in an MBA program and succeed if you don't have some base level of solid critical thinking skills. Someone could argue with me on that. I can see that argument too. What I've found is when I talk to someone who is either going after their MBA or has one, there's a level of critical thinking I really appreciate when I'm able to like talk to them, prod them and discuss all kinds of things. Do you think that's just because their program, especially a case method program, it's so geared towards like thinking differently about a bunch of things. So they tend to have I, I think you're biased if you're going to go through the grueling work of an MBA program. And I think it's grueling. It's like exercises that are useless, like in, in great part. But the value of it is your ability to understand how to critically think about business problems. I don't want someone that just can think. I want someone that can execute. So by going through MBAs and talking to them and then identifying the ones that actually have a bias towards execution, I think you're more likely to have a successful business person that can pick up new things pretty quickly uh, and more likely to find someone like that in that group than any other group out there in the world, to be honest. Because when you, when you think about things like finance, that's very different. It's a, just a lot different type of thinking. I wouldn't call it critical thinking. I'd call it something else. And then obviously there's other biases in that world. I think there's a bias for analysis I would want from someone in finance, frankly. And and so, but but again, that's, that's just off topic a little bit, but I'm just trying to wor- work through the different business roles. And I can identify that someone with an MBA that can critically think and we can identify a bias for execution is very likely to do well in almost any organization, no matter what size. And especially at a startup, because that bias for execution plus a critical thinking is what every founder I meet either has or has to learn. A founder is essentially a Swiss army knife business person, even if they're technical, even if they're a marketer, even if they're a salesperson, that's what you end up with. So you're kind of like a classic generalist with an ability to learn things really fast and that it has to do with critical thinking and taking action. So I've never had what it sounds like David Cantle or maybe you or other folks had with MBAs. I never had that allergy at all, but I had this bias towards action. So I think there is an, on average, there's a lower grade of training on bias towards action in MBA programs. And maybe what you're saying is they're switching things up a little bit. Because I've spoken at, never Harvard, but I've spoken at Stanford um, and Berkeley and probably a few other places uh, over the years. They're all kind of the same. Yeah, to this these kind of groups. And I always felt like the energy was almost electric in some of the rooms. But I also brought that out because I would dispel myths. I would talk about things that resonated with them. Or I was in a class that was entrepreneurship class <laughs> as part of the MBA program, right? Well, yeah. So I think I was, that's the class or the type of class I was in. I've not had an aversion. I just know that like, that's a common thing that I know. I, I know founder friends who are just like, I just won't hire MBAs, right? And I think they always like come back from that later. I think what's interesting though, is the bias towards action. 90% of the advice I was giving in the crits was like, do something. It was very like action orientated, you know, cause I think they are overthinking, but also this, the environment kind of forces them to think more. There were some things where they started off with like feedback and the class was really well structured, but they were talking about like 
oh, did you have these conversations, right? And the class is being taught of like, here are all the roadblocks that occur. So there were some conversations that they were having where I was like, oh, I wish I had that in my first year starting a company. I didn't have that till year three or four. And that was terrible, right? So I think it's one of those things where it's like, some of them aren't going to make it, which I think is the professor knows, like everyone knows. And then some of them are probably going to like come out of that thing like a slingshot, which is kind of cool like this program that they were having. And then others, it'll be like, oh, this was interesting and it'll fizzle out and maybe they just didn't really want it, but they thought it was interesting. So I don't know. I got the whole like, let's think a lot and strategize a lot about stuff from some of the MBAs I talked to. But, you know, we have plenty of people who worked here that have MBAs and they just had that bias to action. So yeah, so what we, what we typically do is we really think through whether that person is like going to be able to do the job if they're an MBA and they're coming in in a business role, even if they had a background in that, or even if they worked at another company, maybe much larger than ours. And like, we don't know how strategic they were, how tactical they were, how much they were able to execute. So one, one hack, which we don't really want them to do when they come in is just like any business role. I'm like, what's your 30, 60, 90 day plan. And I'm talking more on the not senior side, but like senior side, for lack of a better way to think about it, which I think every MBA comes in, in my opinion, with some aspiration for senior role or something very aggressive in terms of where they want to get to, rightfully so in a lot of cases. So we're just trying to learn how they think. So that 30, 60, 90 day plan is all we're evaluating them on from a tactical standpoint and strategic standpoint, because that will tell you whether they know how to execute or not. And a lot of it is like, I don't know what happens 90 days from now, but I'm going to do all the things 30 to 60 that get me the learnings to figure out what to do after that. And a lot of times their time horizon is wrong in terms of how fast or slow we should move in certain areas. But that's been my process. And that's what actually has taught me a big appreciation for MBAs. Because I'm looking for those two things, critical thinking skills and bias towards action. And I think that they're not taught, but the MBAs that you want at a startup have both of those things in spades. And they just yeah. want to go. And they're really freaking good. Yeah, I think, I think their depth of critical thinking is very good that when they have biased action, it's good. Yeah, you just, they just destroy it, right? They just get done. And they get done at startup speed or even better, you know, because startup speed, we, we all talk about how that's fast. I'd say that most founders don't have a bias towards urgency. They don't have a sense of urgency. Most team members don't have a sense of urgency. I mean, at this point, and I've, I've told our team this, and they see me do it on calls with like partners and, and folks that are usually slow. I get on calls and when I can, I tell them, hey, I'm impatient. You've probably noticed that. And I tell people that because I want our team to have a sense of urgency and there's no other thing I can do than just speak about myself and speak about how I think about things. And they can decide how much of whether they want an ounce of that or a pound of that for themselves. Right? They're going to need an ounce, though, to work in, in, in my companies, but you don't need a pound. But if you have a pound, you will move up super fast in our companies if you have that sense of urgency. right? And that's just the truth in startups. But I don't see that with founders. I don't see that with teams. I see a lot of lackadaisical or whatever word you want to use. And at the end of the day, like we survive or we die. And that's how business is, in my opinion, not just startups. You look at companies like Tesla. Tesla's doing extremely well today from a stock price standpoint because of a bunch of announcements and stuff like that. Whatever opinion you have about Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX and all the things he's done, there's no way anyone can say that, that company, those companies don't have a sense of urgency. There's no way you can say that Elon Musk does not have a sense of urgency. That is very powerful in today's world when things are changing constantly in all kinds of areas. 
and you need to keep up and you can barely keep up and you're always going to be drowning, especially if you've got something worth the time that your customers are spending with it. You know, that's kind of what I, what I I think for me, this made me think of two or three things. One, it made me think of, I think corporate PTSD is a real thing. When you hire people who are at big companies, this is, this is kind of digital. It's not that those people shouldn't be at your company because I think you need them to level up. It's that you need to have an expectation or alignment conversation with them early. I missed this early on and now I have it where I'm like, hey, like you just said, hey, I I seem like I'm impatient all the time because I am. Here's why. It's not a judgmental thing. It's just a, we got to go, 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 go. The second thing I talked to them is what you just said, which is related, which is like, we need to move quickly. Like speed is a virtue, right? Speed is the thing here. Like communication management, talking about like the form of all this stuff, unless it's a form specific conversation, like don't worry about that stuff. That's the thing that like is kind of hard to instill because right now the conversations I'm having are speed conversations with, with the team that I directly manage. And somehow it's, I've realized that I'm having that conversation means I'm not having the other conversations, which were more alignment. Are we doing the right things? Are we focusing the right way? Are we building the right things? So it's actually kind of like a, to me, it was a signal of, oh, I have the right people doing the right things. And it's not that they don't get speed. It's just, hey, I I think it's going to take till this. Okay. How do we cut that timeline in half? Okay, well, you could do this, you can do this, you can sub in for doing, like, we're having the right conversations right now or the better conversations that I think we were, which really excites me. And so that that's kind of a signal, I think. What I'm trying to say is when you're, you start having conversations with people strictly about speed, not about, like, this is the right content or how to write the content or how to put together the marketing or growth campaigns, like, I think you've kind of hit the right stride because then that's your job as, at least in my mind, CEO operationally, is just to, like, have you move as quickly as humanly possible without running out of money. The last thing I'll say on that, there's a company that you and I respect that I signed an NDA with, so I can't say publicly here what the company is. They want to partner with us, which is really exciting. And I'm so excited to partner. But then they went at the end of the partner call on Friday, they go, oh yeah, we have a really aggressive timeline. Like we're trying to do this in like July of next year. And I was like, what? Like to me, it was just a weird, like I I think of them as fast, just bastions of beautiful startup tech, you know, moving forward. And they're big now. They're not small. They're billions of dollars in value. But I was like, we could do this by the end of the year. Like, you know, they their tech might not be ready. They have priorities and stuff. So it was just kind of funny. Like, this is the thing that as you get bigger, the concept of fast, I think, changes dramatically. And that's deathly. You know, you got to think, you got to keep that like, no, no, no. How do we ship this faster? How do we ship this faster? Always, you know, that drum being beat. One of the factors for a company that has product market fit, has hundreds, thousands, whatever of employees, their scale of what they need to do to make a significant impact on their revenue is very different. And so I think on the surface, what you're saying is absolutely 100% correct, which is they're slow, you're fast. Just to call it like in terms of where your head is versus theirs, they're thinking three quarters out, you're thinking one quarter out, right? Worse. And one quarter out is probably even death right? <laughs> at startup speed and scale. But the problem is the initiative I'm sure that is on the table is a much bigger potential initiative for them. And they probably also need to be more careful And there's probably also all kinds of considerations internally between teams. And so to them, that's fast. While a year is slow, but two or three quarters is pretty fast, right? That's kind of my opinion of like what I see out there in the world. 
that's one aspect. Another aspect is they've just become slow. And that's just because of overhead, number of people, so many initiatives going on. I wouldn't say lack of focus, although sometimes it is a lack of focus inside the big orgs. I think one good example is Google. Google's extremely hard company to navigate from the outside. But here's the irony. It's also extremely hard to navigate from the inside. And what folks have described it to me as from internal, so I can say this because I'm not saying it, is it's a multi-headed hydra. And that's kind of how people have described it to me internally. And then they've told me, here are the key people you need to talk to in these four key areas, and I'll find you the right people in each of them. And they won't talk to each other, but they'll talk to you. And it's not in a bad thing that they won't talk to each other. They just have no need, but they'll talk to you. And between that, you'll be able to triangulate who will help you with what you need. There's been a lot of learnings for me from that. I'll say one other thing, which is some companies are partner centric and some companies are not. And based on that, from the outside, you can have a very specific experience or not with them, right? And I think that's that's actually where the rubber meets the road, which is when I go evaluate a company, are they partner centric? Are they not? And if they're not, that's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean we can't get it done. That just means that it requires a different approach. So lately, I try to identify which camp the company is in, and then I take an approach based on that that makes me get what I want for my company. You know, very different approaches, though. Yeah. Like if they're not partner partner centric, also different. you're going to knock on like 10 doors in the company until you get the answer you want. If they're partner centric, someone's just ushering you around and saying, hey, go here, go there, go, th- go to the other place. What's really funny is like even at Google, they had very... So at least when I was there, which at this point was like 10 years ago, might not be the same, but I, I still have some people in the sales org there. The sales side, extremely easy to manage or navigate because very, very like hierarchical, like classic, like, you know, yes, to like get stuff done was hard sometimes because of approval process and classic bureaucracy. But like, I think it's also like, what is the aim of what's trying to get done? And you kind of got into that with like the partner focus, et cetera. It's like that sales team is geared just towards money, Right. So like money, 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 and this is why it's structured this way. It's almost structured in like a militaristic, you know, hierarchy. Absolutely, hundred percent. And how you structure your sales organization, I think that that's very dependent. In a product organization, you want a little more exploration, and like you don't want to run like a like a sweat code sweatshop basically. Which I know some people they run it. This is why like continuous deployment. You don't want hard deadlines, but you kind of want the product team to worry about debt. Like there's a lot of stuff. And I know you have a lot of opinions on how to align a product team and stuff, but it's just really fascinating how this all like comes together and, and how both structure, but also like direction does influence speed, but you can really mess it up with applying the wrong structure and then literally take the same structure and apply it to a different type of team. And all of a sudden it's brilliant. Like I know if our sales team was a little bit less structured, it would, we've tried it and it's just terrible because <laughs> salespeople aren't wired you the same way. You can't do sales yeah. without an incredible amount of process and structure if you want accountability. If you don't want accountability, then cowboys and Indians definitely works out super well, so to speak, but it doesn't last too long. This is one of the reasons why companies try to get as far away from founder sales as soon as possible if they have any logic around it, right? Like for example, at Nira, the second our head of sales was able to close deals fast, meaning like one call closes and stuff like that. That's when I knew we were onto something. That's when I knew that like he got it too. But more importantly, we were onto something. Until then I was like, yeah, I can sell it, but I'm a founder. So I have a different level of authority and influence over whoever's on the other side 
as long as I'm really good at hitting on all the points, addressing the objections up front, demoing the product. And and those are things I think about because it's hard to go from that level to then having a process, right? Or even having someone else be able to sell as well as you, right? And I have an opinion about that, but you know, that that's kind of a problem. Like for example, uh, my current belief is if the product does not demo well, you will not be able to sell the product. And the majority of products that are in the space that I'm in right now, they don't demo well. And so when we show up with our product and it demos extremely well, that's basically shedding light to what experience they're going to get from us after they make the jump to like buy our product or get in a POC or whatever it is. And I don't see anyone being able to touch us on that anytime soon, if ever. And that makes me very happy because not because I'm a product first founder, because you could argue I am, but it's because I believe today your product has to speak for itself. And if your product does not speak for itself, go back to the drawing board, fix the product. And I've had debates with people, not at Nira, but in other places about this. And I win every time because every objection you have as to why the product isn't the most important thing. I can tell you where you're going to misfire if you go after the other things like marketing or sales or other things when the product's just not there yet. And again, I'm not a product purist, but at the end of the day, the world we're in today, there are so many products out there and people don't want to buy those, but they're forced to because they don't have options. I just want to give them options, frankly. And I know you do too, because your product's pretty sick for what it does. I don't know how your demos go or how well it demos, but I would imagine with the features you have now, the way that you just make people money by a couple clicks and stuff like that, that like it probably demos extremely well. You know, I used to be not as excited about some of the analytics and graphs and charts that you folks were doing. But then once you started showing me how you're thinking about it, what other systems you're connecting to, I'm like, crap, this is going to demo super well, right? And it's not that it's about the demo. No, no, no. It's about the product. And if it demos well, that means it's a good product because I'm talking about a demo that leads to someone buying, but also that leads to them happy when they use the product. So if it doesn't demo well, how can they imagine using it well? They can't. You're just selling them a feature list or you're selling them a solution to a hypothetical problem they have or a hypothetical solution to a problem they have, which is even worse. And I would say that that area is probably such a key area. And I know I went off on a rant about sales and stuff like that and brought it back to product because that's what I'm going to do all day. And this is product trade-offs, supposedly. So that's what's up. It is your nature. It is my nature too. Yeah, I do think the founder-driven sales, it's definitely a thing. So when we were selling just PI... It was like, cool, I'm just going to do PI and it's just going to lead to, we would go in, PC does the nerd thing. And I would just be like, pricing, here's what you got to do. Here's how you structure it. This is what you guys are missing. And then I'd set them up and Peter would basically close them. And then we did that with Retain for a while. I think the problem was, is that a founder can always fill in pieces of the pitch that the salesperson isn't going to know. Like I'm fairly certain Peter did not really know what we were doing for like two years. Like when we were selling, because we were just selling together. And then all of a sudden there was this huge friction when I was like, I just can't be on these calls anymore. And I think with Retain, it was the same thing. So what I did is I designed the deck with our designer. Like I designed the deck, which is like the anchor. Where do they go into the product? Where do they like stay in the deck, et cetera? And that seems to have worked fairly well. The way it was easier for me to get out of sales was because I'm not a follow-up guy. I'm really bad at that. Like, I'm just bad at like all the blocking and tackling of a sale. Like, cool, let's do this DocuSign, let's do this, then let's do that. I think it's just just boring to me. And so it's like, it was easy for me. Great sales leaders, they get excited about getting the deal moving to get to the close. 
So they're pulling back from the clothes, right? They're pulling back from the clothes and they're like, wait, 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 hold on. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the deal closed. Even if it's not even a deal on the table, like even the things like on the call, like on the call being like, yo, when can I hit you up? You ain't ready yet? That's cool. No worries. When are you going to be ready? And then they always tell you, hit me up at this point. Now it's like, because you said hit you up in December where I I just got off a call. Now I'm going to do this. I just got off a call off of a company we might or might not have mentioned a couple times over these podcasts. Dude's like, yeah, not ready. Someone's going to get hired in December. Hit me up. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to hit you up in December. Every time someone gets hired, they need to see a demo of our tool as soon as possible. So they don't go waste time trying to solve these problems in some other way. And that's all I want to do for you. You know, but if we didn't have the call today with the head honcho of that department, basically head of IT, CIO, we wouldn't have even been in the game when that guy gets hired. Like we know we wouldn't have because we don't have all the marketing and stuff. So our outbound process got us to that person. The person was curious. They've been in the job for about a year and they're like, yo, I get it. I need help. Right. And I'm going to get help. And then you're going to help me on top of that. And here's the timeline. And like, that's the common case. If, if it's not now, it's later. That's the one big thing I learned from from salespeople that I've worked with. Great salespeople. It's like, it ain't never. It ain't no until they say no. And I'm going to keep hammering until they say no. And more importantly, if you've got the right timing and the right product, it's not no. It's, hey, later. And then you just get them to tell you what does later look like for you. It's been great. Yeah. I like this a lot. I think the the takeaway I think a lot of people should think about is sales has two pieces, really three pieces. It's got selling the value, the outcome, et cetera, like basically the story. It's got all the blocking and tackling of pushing things forward. And then it's got the product that backs everything up once the trial starts, once the deal starts, so people don't pull out, et cetera. Most people, they think it's just the first part. I don't think founders appreciate the second part. And then the third part, I think more, let's say, younger, early stage founders appreciate, but I think later stage founders don't appreciate as much always. Because a lot of it, the chicken comes home to roost always eventually when it comes to retention. But sometimes like people who like raise a bunch, they're like, oh, our product will get figured out at some point. And sometimes it does, but a lot of times it doesn't. Most of the time it doesn't. In today's world, you never figure it out later. I think people can buy their way out of it. But we're talking about like 10%. I don't see that scenario right now because- what I've noticed is, and I noticed this in our own product, if the product does not have certain things and there's sometimes there are nuances and they just even get an inkling that it's not going to have those things, the customer kind of starts getting a little jittery about the purchase, right? And, and the only way to deflect that yeah. or deal with it is, well, here's our product strategy. Here's why we do it like this. This is what we're going to do next. This is when it's going to come, right? And like, that's clarity. And then they can decide, do they want to wait till that feature or whatever comes, or are they ready to do it now? And here was my point. If you can't do that on a sales call, you're going to lose too many deals. Because here's the thing, right? And again, this is a really good topic in my opinion, and I'm going to get into it, especially with you, but we sell software that people pay for on a recurring basis. We need to align with the customer on what improvements we're going to make. They're not buying us now and saying, I'm going to buy it for a month. They're buying us for usually year-long contracts, or even if they're paying monthly, they still want to buy into that this product is going to get better over time. And if you can tell them, hell yeah, it's going to get better over time, and let me tell you how, and let me tell you why what we've done so far was done deliberately so it can be made better over time. For example, we hop on a call, I'm talking to a customer, we have a big data product, just like yours, 
possibly way more data points, right? Like actually 100% way more data points. I have told customers, I would agree. yeah, I just know my counts. And for the number of customers we have today and the count, it's kind of insane. I can't believe we can do this actually, to be honest. But we go and we talk to the customer and I will tell them if I'm on the call, because I can do this, we have rebuilt our backend six times in the last 18 months. And they look at me sideways at first. And then I tell them why we're rebuilding it right now for the capabilities we're going to add in the next quarter. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, and with that capability and us doing that, here's what we're going to be able to do for you. And that connection is, I think, what people buy. They don't buy what you do today. They buy your ability to deliver value continuously for them in the right ways. And we've gotten multiple times, oh, I really love. So wait, hold on. You're telling me that when we tell you something, you take it seriously? We're like, yeah, that's customer feedback. We take it seriously. And then they're like, oh, and they're just thinking in their heads, what other vendor is going to take my feedback seriously? And they, their impression is that nobody takes their feedback seriously. That's the impression in the market, at least that we're in right now for our product. I think the problem, the very like nuanced out that I have on what you're saying is that like there's so much bad software Ugh. still out there. It's a lot of the older software. I think the market is finally at the point where like bad software can't thrive. Oh, right? thank you. What's happening is that basically like people are now in a situation where I've still bought a bunch of like software, if that makes sense. And the result is, is that they really appreciate what you're doing, but there's a lot of bad software out there still getting sold because of legacy, because like the new stuff that takes them seriously hasn't caught up. You know what I mean? And so like, long story short, it's like one of those things where it can get like really complicated. And I don't know, I think optimizing for the long term, you're hundred percent right. I just worry that like, we got to get to, to long term, if that makes sense. Well, my point is, if you have a product strategy and you can align the customer on the product strategy, the long term isn't an issue because they believe in your long term. So it becomes like a, a dot, right? And there's very specific things we say in our company to the customer because we know what their objections are. And we know exactly how our product strategy aligns with every single objection they have. So if you were really good at this and you didn't have the product chops or strategy that we do, you could still talk your way out of some of this stuff when customers hit you with objections, right? It doesn't mean you're lying. It just means you're talking your way out of it and giving a framework, right? Because the thing is, back to the original point, people are buying our software, not for what it does today, but for the continuous value delivery that we're going to have for them. I don't know if I agree with that fully. I think in your case, yes. In general. Try me. I feel more strongly than ever because I've seen both sides of this. I've failed at it in the past. I've succeeded at it for short periods of time. And at this company, we're never failing at this. Like we didn't even hire our first set of business people outside of Marie and I until we were sure of a few factors. And the validation we have is when those people join the company on the business side and they look at our product, they hear our calls. They're like, I've never worked at a company ever where like this is a sentiment from the customer, where this is the quality quality of what we're doing, right? I'm on board with what you're saying, but I think that like as you push it, there's a point where you push it and it could be 10 million, could be 100. Like for some companies, it's probably a very high, you know, floor for that, that a lot of your buyers are buying you for what you have now and what you're going to have in the future. So we might be debating semantics. That might be like my my response, but it's like... I believe that was the old way. Okay. So people are buying strictly for the future. My, my approach is not mutually exclusive from what you're saying. 
my approach actually gets us to what you're saying. So today, I'll give a very tangible example. Today, we, we have Google Workspace as the only integration for our product. That's the only product that we integrate with and give you the security features that we do on top, right? Where else do people go? Is it Office? Like, I actually was, like, thinking about this. I was like, I don't know. Where else? Like, what do people use? Like, I know there's some other, like, long-tail ones, but is it Office and then a couple well, of A couple things. We're not just a document security product. So that, that, that's one reason why, like, th- that matters. The short answer is Microsoft. The longer answer is the dot, dot, dot. The dot, dot, dots are Box, Dropbox, and others. And I think we've talked a little bit about how literally everyone's churning from those products for, for some really good reasons. And so we have one integration. We have a philosophy. Our philosophy is until we have what we call level three integration with that integration, it makes no sense to add any other integrations. When I talk to our customers about that, they're like, wait, why? I'm like, okay, check out the products in the market today. Like, okay. They have probably seven, eight, five, three, more integrations than us. Small products, big products. Some have 50. Go use their product. They're like, yeah, I use their product. I've seen it, whatever. Okay. Does it work? No. The answer is just blank. No. Well, what do you mean? Well, this feature has this, or this integration has this capability. This integration has this other capability. And when I try to do things across integrations, I can't. And then I'm sitting here like, oh, and I wouldn't talk about this on any other podcast or with any other person but this is about product. Oh, okay, let me explain why they screwed up for you and the market and why we're not going to. Because remember, I told you that we've rebuilt our backend six times. Well, why? Well, it's because when we wanted a level one integration and we thought it meant XYZ depth, we were wrong. (laughs) And we had to rebuild the backend to support ABC that we learned as we got into it. And then level two, same problem. We thought going in, it was going to be eight, you know, this tech we needed and this way to solve it to deliver the experience you need. Well, turns out there's some tweaks we had to make. So then we rebuilt that again. But now we have a level two. And this quarter, which is really Q4 of 2021, we're building level three integration for Google Workspace. And, and at this point, because of the research we've done and the tech work we've done in the background, we feel very good about the tech stack on the back end and the capabilities that we need for a level three integration with any integration we do. And that's why now we started working on the second integration, which is Microsoft, right? Because we have all the tech to support a level three integration with Microsoft because we figured it out with Google Workspace because we don't want to be a company where six months down the line, they look back or a year or two years or three years, however long, they're like, oh crap, our customer success team is too large. The number of support tickets that are about bugs are like incredible. And then the worst thing in the world happens. The CEO and or founder has to go do 100 days with 100 customers. Why? Because they screwed up the product. That's it. And that screwed up the rest of the business. Think about how this impacts sales. Think about how it impacts customer success. Think about how it impacts COGS. And it's all because they just didn't build the product the right way. That's it. That makes sense. That's where my issue is. Right. And that's why I think people are buying your ability to ship product. They're not buying anything else because they want their problem solved. And it's likely the problem they have today, once you solve it, they're going to find a new problem they want you to solve. Look at your business. That's what happened to you repeatedly. This feels, no, 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 no. I agree with you. It's more just like it is a framework I 100% agree with. I would put it before today differently. So it's not worth like arguing with. Does that make sense? The thing is, If I talk to someone and we really dug into your product, you're going to have so many rough edges on this thing 
that like it gives you anxiety because like I have a product right now and a business that gives me that kind of anxiety right now. But I have another one where I'm like, I have zero anxiety about everything I said because I know what we're doing. This is like 18 years of wisdom on the SaaS side, right? Where I'm like, oh, dude, not even just trust me. It's like, okay. I'll see you in six months. I'll see you in a year, right? Like, like we'll, we'll talk about this and you're going to be like, I'm right. And I don't like that because I'd rather you do it now. But like the thing is that partnership between product design engineering is what it takes to get this right. And that's not what's happening at the majority of companies, even the smallest ones. That's, that's where the problem is. How do, you, how do you work across those three disciplines in order to build a great product at every stage of the company, regardless of the scale of the company? That's where I, I, I worry a lot and I make sure that we're good there. If we're good there, I think we're fine. That makes sense. Always got me thinking. This one's deep. This one's something that no, I, I literally woke up one day. I was like, oh, this is why I, I do things a certain way and I don't want them done any other way. Oh, okay. This is why I love working with our head of engineering that I've been working with for 10 years, right? This is why I love working with our designer that I'm working with for like 17 or 16, right? It's like, I don't need to say any of this to them, either of them. They're like, yeah, it's not even a conversation. It's like, it's, it's like nothing to say. It's just like, okay, every conversation has this, all that stuff I just said. Every conversation has a baseline of understanding across design and engineering and myself, which, which is pseudo product in this, in this scenario. I like that. No, it's got me noodling because it reminds me a little bit. I don't know if you're going to get this analogy. Like this should have a name, right? Like values, sales, growth. Like, I don't know, some name. Because it reminds me a little bit of like product-led growth or like jobs to be done. It's like whenever I hear about product-led growth, which is like all the rage right now and jobs to be done, I'm always like, oh, you mean like products or you mean self-serve of five years ago or 10 years ago? Oh, you mean product of like 10 years ago? Like, you know, it's like we're giving some of these things names or frameworks, but that's what that's why those they're important is because it helps teach and get everyone on the same page and align. And all this is completely born out of customer obsession and nothing else. No, no, of right. course. That's no, no, I know saying. you're saying that's that. That's my, why I'm giving little... the I'm giving the name of where it's born out of. I know that there's probably a good pithy framework or a, a whole a whole name thing, right? But something. you know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone was coming at me about their little new framework and it had value as a word in it. And like oh, they, they were trying to get feedback that. from me. I'm like, yo, dude, number one, I have no freaking time for any new frameworks. Number two, if you really were able to be a fly on the wall at our company, we'd be inventing a framework every other day at this point, based on what we're seeing in the market and what we need to do. And also IDGAF about frameworks, right? And not, 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 not between you and I, I think you and I are very good at this stuff and we think about it a lot, but like, I'm not here to teach anybody a framework. I'm not here to you make one up, really good at this? right? But I'll with Patrick on a podcast and if other people get value, wonderful. But like I you gave up. Amazing? Yeah. Brian Belfort, I think is one of the best people in our industry at this. He's got a deck and he won't send it to me because technically I think it's IP of Reforge or something, but it's a deck of, it's literally just shapes. Like it's just different shapes of like how to structure thoughts. This is kind of their job is IP is to develop these like frameworks for teaching stuff. And then, but he's got a shape deck and it's like one of the most amazing things. Like I'm I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him the most backhanded compliment I can right now, which is like. Okay. Theories are not execution. And so if they really want to do it, if But he would agree with no, no, that. No, no, I love him to death. It's a backhanded compliment and he would agree with that. But the thing is, I want to see the case studies of people using that stuff 100%. That's true. He's got him. I know he's no, got No, 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 no. This is not a criticism of him whatsoever. I am sure, a sure, Brian sure, sure. fan and a half times 100 like for the reasons that you said. 
But this is the problem with people that are in the role he's in and organizations like him. They're not actually incentivized to go share the, the results in, the, in a way that help you understand yeah, how they got true. them. Right. And a lot of them just latch on to like, well, I learned well, something. So I did. Yeah. The thing. And it's also like, oh, yeah. loops. So Reforge is the loops company. Right. And like, no, they're not the loops company. There is a brilliant mind running that company that has taught people like you and me a load by the way that he's able to synthesize the tech world and spit it back out for one purpose growth. And so that's why it's a backhanded compliment. It's like, hey, I would love to see the applied version of that the HBS case study stuff for Reforge. That's when I think Reforge flies, right? And that's, again, unsolicited feedback and thoughts, backhanded compliment. But at the end of the day, I want to see that. And and I've taken a Reforge course by being one of the participants on the speaker side and taken meaning like I've had access to material. This was very early on, access to material and stuff. And that was a feedback that I would give anybody like that. That being said, what I realized is these are not problems I care about. Because like when you're applying and you're executing, you could give a rat's ass about what the framework is. And that's where the irony comes in of trying to teach people frameworks. Because if you're going fast enough, none of the frameworks that you use are able to be applied. So a while ago, I did a talk with uh, Nathan Bashaw, one of the early Product Hunt team members. He was actually one of the founders early on. And he has a a newsletter and stuff. I forgot what they call it. Divinations is, is what it was called. And I basically talked about how to make up your own frameworks and your own mental models, because that's, I think, where the, where the value is. And that's where Brian is brilliant, right? He makes them up and then he also educates. My only thought is like the, the evidence of the success of those frameworks has to go beyond theoretical. And theoretical means let's go use our framework and put Dropbox as a lens on it. That's just an HBS case study. That's not quite right. What's right is, hey, this Reforge student came here, learned these frameworks, applied them like this over at their company, and here's what the results are, right? That's that's what I want to see more well, of the, from all these. That's the success metric. That's what jobs yeah. to be done miss. That's, that's what jobs to be done miss. That's what every framework I've seen miss except Lean Startup. Lean, Lean Startup was the only one where you could find that evidence. And it still wasn't good enough, but it was much better. And there's only one reason. There was such a strong need for that framework at that time that so many of us were really into it and willing to share and have talks and discuss the actual practical applications of what Eric Reese was essentially saying. And he would even talk about them and made uh, Imview, which is a company he was at before he came up with this stuff, a case study where he talked about how he applied it over there and then pulled it out and then started talking about how it can apply to all kinds of other people. We don't have practitioners like that today. And practitioner is the word, not teacher. He was a practitioner. That's why Lean Startup blew up so fast and so hard and so successfully compared to any other framework I've seen in a long time. It's still the tried and true. You read the book, you're going to get how to do startups. I'm on board. I like it. What else is going on in your life? Made me ran on product. That's the thing I work on all day, every day, one way or another. No, so. no, I just put a quarter. If I don't feel like talking, I just put a quarter in you. There you go. That's what you did. Thanks, man. Nothing much, dude. Just thinking about these kind of problems for myself, though. Not really worried about other people learning because I think I, I just have very counterpoints to what I see out there in the world today. And I think that's a time when I need to kind of shut up and just do my job, so to speak, for myself. I'm having that moment right now. I go through these waves where I'm like heads down and then I kind of pick my head up and then I'm like, ew. No, it's not even ew. It's like, ah, maybe I should keep my head up. Maybe I should do all these things. And then I just go, 
No, put your head back down, mofo. Get going. I don't know. My head was up for so long on that level that like, nah, dude, I just want to be heads down now. I don't like, please don't show me yeah, a new framework. I, I'm not even going to bother. Go show someone who cares and needs it. I don't need it. I don't care about it. I don't want to give you feedback on it. Like, cause I probably already have one in my back pocket. I invented last week. So like, I don't know. Cause when you're executing, it's you're yeah. like, I'm done teaching. You're like, I'm done teaching. I'm, I'm I also on. prefer the practitioner, which is like, I did it. Here's what I did. Here's how I did it. Now you do whatever you want with it. That's all I got. Right. Instead of like, Oh, here's a framework. Now go learn it. Here's a paint by numbers and all that. Plus like there's value in that. I would debate today though, that execution is so much more important than understanding any framework, any framework. Yeah, that's true. I got it. I'm on board. I bought an engagement ring today. I wanted to tell you that before we left. She doesn't listen to the pod, so it's fine. I'm speechless, and I'm so happy for you. Why? Why are you speechless? Awesome. I didn't know when that day would come. Like the the, 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 exciting. the, the This is the first step on a long well, journey, Patrick. So you'll appreciate this. She basically, I didn't get an ultimatum, but we've been together for like six, seven years now. And like, this is the one or whatever. We have joint bank accounts. We bought the house together. Having the day and the ring is not important, but like it's to me at least, but to her, it's like not the most important, but it's, it's a thing. So she kept like asking me, especially with COVID all the freaking time. And I said, listen, give me a range. Give me a range that you would like this to happen in because, and then you are not allowed to ask me about it. And so we did that and we're getting to the end of the Oh page. God, Patrick, like, what are you doing, bro? I actually recall you might've told me about this range. Yeah. The ring arrives literally the last day of the range. So it's going to be interesting. Why you got to be that guy? It's going to be fascinating. Why you got to be that guy? Why you got to be that guy? Like Faku was like, well, is this like subconscious? Like you don't want to do it? I was like, no, it's just like this part of it is not important to me. Like I've been, I've told her, I was like, you want to go to the courthouse right now? We'll do it. I'll do it right now. Like we'll go do it. And now she calls my bluff and I'm not bluffing. I'm just like, go. And then she's like, no, I want to do like this. And this. I'm like, cool, I can give that to you. But like, I don't, I don't have urgency. So I need the range. And then the range is coming up. So I had to take care of business. The lady was like, this is the quickest sale I've ever done. Yeah. Don't like, worry about it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't worry about it. I knew what, I knew what I needed. There's no hesitation. I, I already got the money in my head, how much I was going to spend and everything. So I was just like, just get it done. She's like, well, do you want to look? No. I was like, I don't want to look at <laughs> just anything get me out else. Here. <laughs> Please don't lose the sale. Like you're, gonna, you're, you're tempting losing the sale by asking all these questions. I want this, this, and this and run my card. And then, yeah, so that's exciting. So I'll be engaged in the next month or two. So that'll be fun. The Instagram of it, I think I actually loathe. It's not that I don't care. I just hate it. I think that's held me back too. Like she also, like she wants a ceremony and stuff. I don't want a ceremony. A private ceremony, I think is fine between me and her. Like, cause I think we're going to end up eloping and then having a party. But I very much was like, I don't want the traditional ceremony. And she's kind of bummed. We're, we're figuring it out. But it was very like, I realized like the thing I hate about weddings is when the weddings become not about the actual couple and they become not about the couple with even the best intentions all the time. And so I wasn't someone who felt like he could just like give in to, okay, this isn't about me. This is about our family or whatever. Cause I think some weddings are like that. I was someone who's like, I don't want this thing unless there's a separate thing that's us. And then we can have whatever you want for the other thing. Is that neurotic? I have one piece of classic advice and I hope you take it. Just one piece of classic advice. And I really, really hope you take it in this case. Oh boy. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> And so everything you just said, I'm like, Patrick, if she wants it, to, give yeah. it to her. 
I hope you take my advice. Yay. Like you said, she doesn't listen to this, so I don't get credit for this, which is fine. That's fine. I don't need I'll it. I'll give you credit. I'll make sure. But she at the does. end of the no, I don't care. At the end of the day, if she wants X in this situation, it is so cheap on so many levels, psychological, That's monetary, for you cheap. to give it to her. Whatever way she wants it. And it's your opportunity to be different. It's your opportunity to remove yourself from this problem. And that's my advice. Your advice is going to be taken or is being taken. You can't have the opinions you just it shared is. with me if you want to make sure that you set this up correctly from day one. I know. And we can go into a much deeper, longer convo because you're a friend of mine, but this is important. There are many details that I don't want to share publicly that I will share with you that are like, let me, let me put it this way. She doesn't think about it as what she wants, but nuance aside, she's getting what she wants, but there are like a couple of edits that don't affect what she wants that I can get that help me. And it's not a preference thing. It's an emotional thing for me as well. So like her, her emotional preferences outweigh mine, in my opinion, in this whole situation. So I'm just trying to make sure that like I'm able to deliver. You just want to make sure it feels one-sided and it, and that's all you need to arrange in this situation. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters, and you're still not there yet. I'm on we board. will get you there. This is very important. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. You got anything no, else? No, that's the will. <laughs> that was not expected, but no, I don't have anything else. We'll end on this. I didn't tell. I haven't told anyone except Dude, awesome. Faku. And I was oh, like, yeah, I just need to tell someone it. else. And now yeah. I told all of our closest friends. There you go. Y'all know. Don't blow up the spot yet. Let me blow it up first. It'll be really funny if someone does blow this up on like social. I doubt it's going to happen. But it, it would be funny. And then she's, she's, she's not on Twitter, so she's not going to see it anyways. So it would be really funny if like thousands of people know about this, but she doesn't because she's not on social media. I mean, there's someone who follows me that she's friends with, I'm sure, or something will happen. But I got her on Instagram, so you're in trouble either way. So There you go. I think you guys have texted. I'm sure we have, yes. Anyways. I'm, I'm very texty in general, and Instagram's my jam for sure. All right. Well then, I'll just have to. I'll have to do this. Yeah, I think. I think. I think you should just do it because. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, that's a wrap. All right, we'll follow up. We talked about beards. We talked about MBAs. We talked about product strategy when it comes to sales and customer obsession. We talked about nuptials. Yes, deuces, my friend. Deuces. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.